From the Kennan Institute in Washington, D.C., welcome to Kennan X. I'm your host, Jill Doherty. We're back with Season 2. Thanks for tuning in. Your interest, even excitement about our podcast, is what keeps us going. And we can't wait to share another season of our never-ending journey to understand Russia, Ukraine, and the surrounding region. Tak, payekhali. Let's go. On the evening of October 22, 1962, American families gathered around their television sets for an address to the nation by President John F. Kennedy. What they heard shocked the nation. Good evening, my fellow citizens. This government, as promised, has maintained the closest surveillance of the Soviet military buildup on the island of Cuba. Within the past week, unmistakable evidence has established the fact that a series of offensive missile sites is now in preparation on that imprisoned island. The purpose of these bases can be none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the Western Hemisphere. The story of the Cuban Missile Crisis is well known, especially for those like me who lived through the Cold War. But that's the American side of the story. Until recently, the full story from the Soviet perspective was hidden in classified archives. Cold War historian Serhii Plohi, director of the Ukrainian Research Center at Harvard University, gained access to Ukraine's recently declassified KGB archives. And he's just published a new book that reveals the other side of the story of the Cuban Missile Crisis. One of the arguments that I'm making in the book that the world was saved from the war because Despite all the differences, Khrushchev and Kennedy had something in common, and that something in common was the fear of the nuclear war. Well, Serhii Flohi, it is really a pleasure to have you as a guest again. I was thinking the last time we talked was about Chernobyl and your 2018 book on Chernobyl, which I personally consider the most riveting account of that tragedy. And now you're back with another historical page turner, Nuclear Folly, a history of the Cuban Missile Crisis. And once again, you're using newly declassified KGB archives. I'd be very interested in that, the information that you gleaned that we didn't know about before. So I'm looking forward to this a lot. And I think the other thing that struck me was the fascinating personal psychological insights into President Kennedy and Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev. So welcome back. Well, thank you, Jill. And it's really a pleasure to be back. One of the reasons why I wrote that book was that I got access to those new archives, this KGB materials, coming from the archive of the Security Service of Ukraine. And with the Revolution of Dignity, with Maidan revolt in Ukraine, what we also got was uh, archival revolution. So access to the former Soviet materials that otherwise we didn't have that access. And one of those materials that I consulted were the reports of the KGB officers that accompanied every ship that was leaving the Ukrainian ports at that time for Cuba and then were coming back. 
And roughly 80% of all missiles, troops, and other things that were delivered to Cuba went through those Ukrainian ports. So it's quite a representative body of documents. And one thing that you find there is, of course, something that you don't find in any other documents and materials, what the Soviet people really thought about what was going on. <laughs> the reports about soldiers saying, okay, I didn't swear allegiance to Fidel Castro. Why are they sending me there? Well, Cuba is a terrible place. There are monkeys that attack people. Or guys don't worry, the Cubans or the Americans, they will not be shooting at the rank and file, they will be shooting at the officers only. So that kind of stories that you get there. But more importantly, you understand the why and how it happened, what I call probably one of the largest intelligence failures in the American history. Hmm. And the KGB reporting says actually how far they were prepared to go to conceal the deployment of their troops. There is one episode that I describe in a book where he wasn't even part of the military contingent, but he was part of the crew of the ship. He got appendicides. And they were trying to operate on him and eventually decided that he would die, but they would never leave him in the hospital in the Mediterranean because he could actually tell about something to the foreign intelligence. And it turns out that he had nothing to tell. <laughs> At that point, they didn't know where they were going yet. But that's one of the explanations of how that failure really happened. And another really very important insight, something that I don't think was really known before my book or before I at least consulted those sources, is the level of humiliation that the Soviet military and command felt as the result of withdrawal from Cuba. And it wasn't withdrawal per se. It's basically the procedure under which it was done where the American airplanes and American ships were allowed to check on the Soviet ships whether they were bringing their missiles back or not, because Castro refused to allow either American or UN inspectors on the island. So what I call is a strip search mm. of those ships where, again, KGB reporting says that when captain was following the orders, the commander of the military contingent would actually rebel and would say, okay, we are not going to do that. And Khrushchev was ousted two years after the crisis. The Marshal Malinovsky, who was his really very loyal minister of defense until, of course, he betrayed him. So Malinovsky went to his military commanders and said, never in the history of either Russian or Soviet army, the troops actually experienced that kind of humiliation that we had after Cuba. And again, that's something that I read a lot about Cuban Missile Crisis to write this book. I didn't see that in other accounts. Yeah. And that's probably a long lasting feeling too. Yes, I certainly would agree with that. Yeah. I was struck by the fact that the personalities were very important, and you set them up very well. John Kennedy, 45 years old, he's in the middle, I think, of his second year in the presidency. Khrushchev thinks that he is a callow fellow, very naive. I can just roll him if I want to. And then you have Khrushchev, who is 
a fascinating character. His language alone is just worth an entire book. He is earthy, doesn't really do it justice. <laughs> but he is full of, I'll grab him by the you-know-what and right, I'll right. make him do what I want to do. So these personalities lead me to this question about motivation because each was driven by certain factors, sometimes mm -hmm. their personalities, sometimes a domestic political situation, and of course the international situation. So not to get too up close and personal, but how would you say the personalities and the personal interests of these men drove them to do what they did? Well, it's an excellent question. And first of all, I want to stress that personalities really matter, especially in the cases like Cuban Missile Crisis or the cases of nuclear war, because that's where the buck stops, right? These are the people who make those decisions at the end. And with Khrushchev, my original take on his miscalculation was that he didn't get Kennedy right, that Kennedy turned out to be a much tougher guy than he believed. And now, the more I think about that, actually, I don't think he misjudged Kennedy, but he actually, like Stalin, never understood democracy and how it works. Because he believed that he could push Kennedy around. He thought he was a weak president after the Bay of Pigs. He couldn't believe that he actually didn't back the invasion. And now I think he didn't miscalculate because Kennedy on tapes is saying, well, it doesn't really matter that the missiles are there. Strategically, that doesn't change anything. McNamara agrees with him. Europeans agree with him. And he says, well, last week we said that if that happens, we will react. Last week we were supposed to say we don't care. But he's in a particular system, which is called democracy, <laughs> where he is under enormous pressure to do something. For American public, for American political establishment, Soviet missiles on Cuba is absolutely unacceptable. Forget the realities of the military situation and balance and things like that. It's psychologically unacceptable. And Kennedy is caught on tape talking with his brother, Robert, saying that, okay, when they decided on the blockade eventually, that, well, we had to do that. Otherwise, I would be impeached. Mm -hmm. And that part that Khrushchev never really got. And his thinking was, okay, we live with the American missiles in Turkey. What is a big deal? Isn't this fair <laughs> if the Americans would live with the Soviet missiles in Cuba? So he didn't really understood that. But then in terms of personalities, he got really scared. Once he realized that Kennedy is not backing off, he got really scared and was doing everything in his power to de-escalate. But Khrushchev being Khrushchev, of course, he already got permission from Politburo to remove the missiles, but he was still playing the crazy game with Kennedy, not saying actually what was going on. And not just days, hours mattered at that time, because the two leaders started to lose control over their troops on the ground. And that's basically, again, part of the story that seems to me it's not completely new, but it doesn't or didn't get enough attention in this dominant narrative about the Cuban Missile Crisis. Yes, in fact, you use the word panic about all three men, Castro, Khrushchev, yes, and Kennedy. Yes. You literally say that they, at certain points, panicked. There was panic and there was good reason for panic. So <laughs> with Castro, it's another very important player in the entire story that we very often underestimate. And 
Castro was, we think about him as a communist and communist leader. He declares that he is communist only after the Bay of Pigs, because for him, this is a way to get Khrushchev's attention and to make an argument that one communist country has to help another communist country. So he makes the statement only after the Bay of Pigs. And in reality, he is the leader of a nationalist anti-imperial revolution. And from that point, he is as sensitive about being pushed around by Khrushchev as he is sensitive about being pushed around by the United States. (laughs) And he is offended that the deal between Khrushchev and Kennedy didn't include him and, again, exposes the Soviet Navy, the Soviet military to that humiliation that I just discussed before that. Khrushchev can't understand what is going on. He is saying, okay, we saved you. And Castro certainly thinks in very different terms, and he is prepared. One of the arguments that I'm making in the book, that the world was saved from the war because despite all the differences, Khrushchev and Kennedy had something in common, and that something in common was the fear of the nuclear war. So that's something that Castro didn't have. And he was offended that the missiles were being removed, He was prepared to go for a confrontation, and he was quite selfish in that sense because, again, at the stake was his regime in Cuba. And if the regime goes down, let the entire world go down as well. So at least this is my reconstruction of his thinking. But in terms of the panic, yes, he was panicking. He ordered his troops to start firing at the American surveillance airplanes. There was shooting all over the place, creating an atmosphere in which the Soviet generals thought that they were already under attack. And that's how the American U-2 plane was shut down against orders from Moscow. So Castro created an atmosphere on Cuba that actually effectively put him in charge even of the Soviet troops, not technically, not legally, but certainly he was driving the agenda. Mm -hmm. Looking at this, as I read the book, and I must say, I literally was breathing heavily at certain points where I thought, oh, my God, they're actually going to do that? Is this really happening? How will this be averted? Maybe we can get into it a bit later. But that submarine B-59, I think it was, in the Sargasso Sea, that is the closest that we came, a nuclear weapon loaded and ready to be fired. Actually, maybe just very briefly tell me about that, because that moment is when the world could have ended. Yes, absolutely. And that is something that we really learned after the end of the Cold War, and more specifically in the last 20 years. And there was an account of one of the officers on that submarine who said that the captain of the submarine, his last name was Savitsky, really ordered to prepare torpedoes, and one of those torpedoes was a nuclear-tipped torpedo to fire. And that is the narrative that we can find today. Arhipov was the senior commander there, the commander of the task force of four submarines. He happened to be on B-59, and he overruled Savitsky. That's the story that is out there. You can Google it. You can find it. Now, in the last decade, maybe, a number of other memoirs and recollections of the Soviet officers appeared. And one that I trust the most is of the guy, his name was Leonenko, and he was in charge of the torpedo unit. (laughs) So he exactly knew what was going on. And he tells even more horrifying story. He says, yes, there was that story before they surfaced. 
that Arkhipov overruled Savitsky. But then he tells the story that also matches what we know from the American sources as well. That once they surfaced, the captain and Arhipov, they got engaged with the American ships into negotiations with the help of searchlights. And then out of nowhere, the American surveillance plane appeared and started dropping flares to activate its cameras. So the guy was looking for a good shot. (laughs) (laughs) But the impression that Savitsky and others got that they were under attack. Mm. So Savitsky rushes from the bridge of the submarine through the narrow hatch into the submarine itself. Leoninko remembers that he gives him an order to prepare Unit 1, which included also the nuclear-tipped torpedo. And second into the hatch was going a Soviet single man with his searchlight, and he got stuck in that hatch. Physically stuck. (laughs) Yes. That gave Arhipov, who was still waiting for his turn to disappear from the bridge, a few seconds, and he saw that Gary Slaughter, and we have memoirs of that guy, the American young officers who was in charge of communicating with the Soviets, signaling apologies, saying, okay, you're not under attack. And Arhipov himself realized that he was not under attack. And again, in that story, it's another level of sheer horror. But again, the order was withdrawn. And yes, indeed, you read accounts like that from the people who were in charge of the button. And you realize that, yes, Khrushchev and Kennedy, they exercised a lot of restraint at the end after they got in that trouble to a degree that they could. But we are alive today also partly because of just pure luck. As I read the book, and I think this was probably one of the main purposes of writing the book, as you've said, is to draw lessons from it. So as I go on asking you a few questions more in this, I'm thinking, could we draw some lessons? And one would be the very fact that this happened. If you look back, it seems almost inconceivable that you had the Soviet Union stationing nuclear missiles 90 miles from where I have swum on the beaches of Key West, 90 miles away from the United States. And Khrushchev actually thinks that he can have missiles there and it's going to be okay. Or maybe he didn't think it was going to be okay, but that he could push the envelope, let's say, and just do it because Kennedy was weak. So walk me through that. What was his calculus, and can you see any possibility of a similar situation today? Well, absolutely, because the biggest story of the Cuban Missile Crisis, at least the one that I discovered for myself, is misunderstandings, miscommunications. Kennedy was very concerned about that. He read Barbara Stuckman's Guns of August. He was giving it to his military commander. So it was on his mind all the time. And then you still look at what was happening, and there is just disconnect between how they think, how they imagine things. And Khrushchev was, again, thinking that, well... I didn't react to the American missiles in Turkey, and I love to go to the Black Sea, and I'm okay with that. Kennedy probably would be okay with that as well. And that kind of thing that, again, it's about culture, it's about understanding political process, it's about understanding political sensitivities. So it's not just a pure math. 
And that is, at least for me, the, the importance of this cultural things and political things and understanding the other and not thinking that the other is basically cut from the same clothes as you are. That is the most important issue. Again, we had in the last few years this exchange of insults between the American president and the leader of North Korea. And you look at that and you really don't know how these things are really received in North Korea, for example. <laughs> how much do we understand the politics and the sensitivities of the situation there? So that is the biggest question, the lesson that I think we should keep in mind when we move forward. And we are in a situation we are really probably not in the middle, but we are at the start of the new arms race. The term is modernization <laughs> of the nuclear arsenals. That is what is going on now. And we are also in uncharted waters to a degree that there is more drivers on this nuclear highway than certainly there was in 1962. There is no any more Cold War era agreements that would help to regulate that highway. Thank God the new start was continued for five years. So in many ways, we are in pre-Cuban Missile Crisis, well, pre-1962. And I think that, again, going back to those events is really very timely just to remind us how dangerous those things can be and how easy it to just get the other side wrong. Yes. And speaking of that, you mentioned this, but I'd like to dive into it a little bit more. The lack of correct intelligence on both sides. You point out that the CIA thought that all of these Soviet actions were defensive, or at least part of the CIA believed that it was defensive. Kennedy proposed a strike, and Bobby Kennedy comes out as a real hardliner, but they proposed a strike not knowing how many Soviet troops were there. I think they thought it was 10,000 roughly, and it was actually 45,000? Yes, yes. Yeah, and Khrushchev, believing that the ultimate game plan was for the United States to invade Cuba, he was convinced mm -hmm. of that. So how could they have gotten these things so wrong? Well, I was asking that question myself, again, with all this surveillance and certainly a lot of refugees coming from Cuba that the government couldn't control. And still, they didn't get much information in terms of numbers, for sure. There are some explanations of why, for example, the U-2 airplanes didn't pick up that earlier, very specific ones, that there were two accidents before that, then there was bad weather and so on and so forth. But there is a bigger story to keep in mind that it's very difficult to get reliable information in the closed authoritarian societies that really establish tight control over the information, even if it's Cuba and even if it's the next door from the United States. And the same is true. There was no reliable information coming from the Soviet Union. That reminds me about North Korea or about Iran or Iraq before that. So the closed societies can be really very, very good at keeping their secrets. Mm -hmm. And even with such things as mass deployment of troops, the U.S. was not getting reliable information. One thing that I found really interesting was you get into this book really by the backstory of the Bay of Pigs 
and the Berlin Showdown, the showdown at the end of World War II over the city of Berlin. And that was the context that a lot of this took place in, especially for John F. Kennedy, the humiliation of the Bay of Pigs, etc. So there always is some thing that happened before that sets you up for the real confrontation. Mm -hmm. Yes? Absolutely. I would love to jump right away into the story of the Cuban Missile Crisis. But as I was looking at the sources, looking for the ways of how to explain what was going on, I kept going back to the Bay of Pigs and to the Berlin crisis. And I was doing that not because I wanted to do that, because I was following the thinking and the experiences of the two people that were at the center of the story. Again, Castro was involved in one of them. For him, it was also a very important development. And I took this risk to put first two introductory chapters in which I also wanted to present that background because it was all important. One of the chapters of the book is called, it seems to me, The Hostage of Berlin. And this is about Kennedy because all his thinking about Cuba is really informed about what will happen in Berlin. He is concerned about the nuclear confrontation over Berlin at some point more than he is concerned about nuclear confrontation over Cuba. And Berlin is always on his mind. Again, without explaining what happened there, we wouldn't understand Kennedy. We wouldn't understand his behavior. We wouldn't understand what happened there. Another discovery that I made was, again, by bringing in this early history and early experiences, is that Cuban Missile Crisis is a dramatic turning point in personal relations between Kennedy and Khrushchev. Before the Cuban Missile Crisis, Khrushchev is in the driving seat. He sets the agenda. He is in control even when he is retreating from Cuba. But once the retreat happened, the roles reverse. Kennedy, whom I call an apprentice before that, becomes master of the game. <laughs> and Khrushchev, whom I called master of the game before that, really is relegated to the second tier. He is now actually following Kennedy's lead on very many things. So it's a dramatic change in relationship between the two leaders and between the two countries. Fascinating. My last question to get back to psychology, but I think you make such a good point that one of the reasons we are all walking around alive today is because both of these men ultimately when the games were over, feared nuclear war. It was pretty unthinkable for them. And you mentioned that for Castro, it wasn't. And perhaps you could you know, extend that to some people today who do not have the history of the Cold War, did not grow up in that period, and don't really understand how close we came to Armageddon. So I guess the question is, is there sufficient fear in the world right now among the nuclear powers of the potential destruction of what's going on? Because we have these discussions right now. Maybe we could use tactical missiles. Maybe we could just use a little bit of nuclear war, escalate to de-escalate, in order to avert a real big war. So I guess that's my psychological question, but it's a very serious one. It is a very serious one. And that reminded me about President Eisenhower, the only president dealing with nuclear weapons who really was in charge of major military operations. 
and had an insight that probably others didn't have. Again, Kennedy was in the war, but as a lieutenant and in a different position. And Eisenhower never believed that there can be a limited nuclear war. So he was preparing for the all-out war because his experience as a military general was saying that if you are in a conflict, you are actually to survive to win, you are throwing everything that you got. And again, he was criticized for that, for preparing for all-out war. The policy is being changed in the 1960s. But this thinking of the only U.S. president general, who was a general, who knows what fighting the war is, whether he was right or wrong, but for me, it's a very important contribution to the debate. In terms of the fear, no, we don't have that fear. We still live in the end of history moment to a degree. Again, we don't believe anymore that maybe liberalism is the only option out there available, but we certainly believe that the nuclear race came to an end, almost the nuclear age ended with the end of the Cold War, with the disarmament agreements. The trick is that that was a very short period of time between the late 1980s and late 1990s. And since then, things resumed, but they don't get the headlines. And that means we don't know what is going on. And we certainly lost fear, the kind of fear that Khrushchev and Kennedy had because they lived through Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Mm -hmm. They lived through Castle Bravo. Brezhnev exploded Tsar Bomba the biggest nuclear device that the world ever had. So that was part of their everyday life and everyday thinking to a degree that I'm afraid it's not part of the thinking of today's leaders. Again, I can't say that for sure, but certainly not part of thinking on how the public in general imagines that, either in the United States or in the United Kingdom or in other societies that I a little bit better know. So I didn't intend my book to be a wake-up call, but I wouldn't mind if it would contribute to that wake-up process. Mm. Well, it's a fantastic book, and it's not just my opinion. Really, I'm very interested in this, obviously, because I'm interested in Russia, and I was, what, in eighth grade, dare I say, when the Cuban Missile Crisis took place. So I'm really hooked on all of this. But... I can honestly say that it is a cinematic book and a very exciting one and then very important, I think, for our understanding of where we are right now in the world. So, Sergei Polokhi, thank you very much. Nuclear Folly, A History of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Fantastic book, and thank you for being with us. Thanks a lot. It was a real pleasure. Thank you, Kenan X is a product of the Kenan Institute at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars in Washington, D.C. It's the Wilson Center's oldest program, founded in 1974 by George F. Kennan, American statesman, James Billington, historian and former librarian of Congress, and historian S. Frederick Starr. Inspired by them, the Kennan Institute's mission is to improve America's understanding of Russia and the wider region. Thanks for listening. <laughs>